All right, there's the music. That means it's time for Animal Talk, some of the best doggone people on the planet. I'm Jamie Flanagan, and uh, let's get to it. Today, we are uh, we're going to be sipping champagne and uh, going to the movies, talking about just uh, everything James Bond. And uh, when you're talking about everything's James Bond, you got to go to the man who wrote the encyclopedia, literally wrote the encyclopedia on it. Steve Rubin, uh, welcome to Animal Talk. Thank you, Jamie. How you doing? Excellent, excellent. So, Steve, you wrote, uh, I mean, just uh, a, a myriad of books. The Encyclopedia on the Twilight Zone, the Encyclopedia uh, on James Bond. Uh, you wrote a children's book uh, about, uh, did you say it was a fox or a kitten? A kitten. Yeah, well, it started out as a kitten and it became a cat. The cat who lived with Anne Frank, which is which is not made up from whole cloth. Anne Frank frequently in her diary re- re- uh, writes about Mushi, who was the cat Peter brought in to the attic. In fact, uh, Anne was very jealous because she had to leave her own cat, Morchi, back at the apartment when they went into hiding. So at first she didn't like that, but then she grew to love the cat, and the cat would often curl up with her (laughs) while she was writing in her diary. And our book uh, called The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank is the story of the attic from the cat's point of view. Okay. So and Anne Frank's childhood. Um, and usually before we get started and dive into all the books you wrote, and then I want to dig into some uh, James Bond with you. Uh, Steve, t- tell me about your childhood. Tell you about my childhood. <laughs> I was an only child. My dad was older. My dad was almost 50 when I was born. Hmm. And uh, I had a very delightful childhood. I grew up in the late 50s and early 60s when you would go out of your house and spend the day gone around the neighborhood hanging with your friends and nobody cared about security you could go anywhere and we used to play with our little soldiers in the dirt we'd play games we'd go junk hunting <laughs> those were the days when there was no television no internet i mean there was television but there was no internet no video no video games. Um, I grew up across the street from a movie theater. Oh. I was only about 180 yards away from a major stu- uh, major movie theater. So I'm basically a child of the movies. I love it. I love it. And it was that was that that's what fostered uh, your love of movies and uh, TV and the Twilight Zone. How what led you to writing the the book about uh, James Bond? The Encyclopedia of James Bond movies. It's actually, I've written six books on James Bond. I've done Good four Lord. editions okay. of this ens- of the James Bond movie encyclopedia. I've also done a behind-the-scenes history back in the day that was updated. Um, well, it goes back to my teens. I was uh, my dad would come home from business trips, and he would always bring paperbacks home, and he always tried to sell me on westerns. And I said, nah, there's 50,000 Westerns on television. I don't think I want to read about Westerns. But one day he dropped a paperback on my desk and it had a picture of a nude woman on the cover. Hey, game she on. Was, she, was co- <laughs> she was covered in gold and uh, uh, the, her private parts were covered as well, but she was still nude. The title of the book was called Goldfinger. Mm. And I said, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> Way this, to go, Pop. <laughs> this is... This is at the time when these signet paperback uh, Ian Fleming books were popping up on my fellow middle schooler's uh, desks. You know, I, they were all different colors. And I remember 
the Goldfinger book was blue, and I started to read. Now this is this coincides with the Christmas release that year of Goldfinger, okay. the first James Bond movie I would see, and uh, it was a big event. I, I remember because we very seldom journeyed into Hollywood. We usually went to movies theaters in our neighborhood, and as I mentioned, we were across the street from the old Fox West Coast Stadium in West LA. But we went up to the Chinese to see the Goldfinger, which was a big deal in those Ooh, days. Yeah. And oh my God, what a what a viewing experience right. was. I mean, it's now, let's see, it's now uh, over 56 years since the release of Goldfinger, 57 years. Mm-hmm. And Goldfinger still plays. I mean, I can watch it tomorrow and quote dialogue from it. <laughs> but it made a big impact on me. Yeah. And I remember just becoming a total James Bond fan, as we kind of all were back in the mid-60s. The following year, just one year later, they released Thunderball, which was even bigger than Goldfinger in terms of box office. So I was a dyed-in-the-wool Bond fan. And then starting in the 70s, I had worked for a Chicago film magazine called Cine Fantastique, which covered genre. And I'd kind of perfected a type of forensic research onto the making of classic movies where I would track down the people who made the movie, particularly the writers and directors, and I would piece together the history. I called myself at that time a film archaeologist, and that's kind of what I was doing. I was digging, but I was digging into the history of movies. And um, my first book uh, I published, uh, we uh, had published after college, was called Combat Films American Realism, 1945 to 1970, which was an examination of movies about World War II. But the book sold about 500 copies. And I said to myself, if this is the future of me writing books, I might as well get out of the business. I got to find a topic <laughs> that people will really want to read about. And I happened to discover that no one had done a behind the scenes history of the Bond movies. And that started me on that road, uh, which led, of course, to the encyclopedias later. So I've been writing about Bond for over 40 years. Okay. Um, And it ended up being, you've done, you said you said six books on Bond? Two editions of the Behind the Scenes History, which was called the James Bond Films of Behind the Scenes History, and four editions of the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia. The latest is out now, includes No Time to Die. Okay. Uh, Spoiler alert, apparently there is. (laughs) At the end of the movie. (laughs) I'm not going to say anything about, uh, about No Time to Die, other than the fact... That I loved it. I thought I, it was terrific. I haven't seen it yet. I'm like, okay. I, 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 I was because we set this interview up, and I'm like, all right, I got to I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then this week, got I teach high school, and so uh, being in public uh, in Michigan, uh, it's been a challenge this week. Um, what what subject do you teach? Um, I'm an English teacher, but I do uh, yearbook, newspaper, broadcast, speech class. Oh, fabulous! So yeah. Fabulous. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a challenging week, but none, nonetheless, uh, I didn't get around to, to watching it. But someone had told me that, uh, yeah, oh, spoiler alert, that uh, Jimmy. Kicks, well, let's Jim, just say Jim, that certain yeah. things happen that are yeah. a little surprising in this movie. But I've been a big <laughs> fan of Daniel Craig since he came onto the role in 2006. So that was going to be my question. Um, it, it's it's who is the best Bond and and who is who's who's the best and who's the worst. Well, it's, a, it's kind of axiomatic that you love the bond you grow up with. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was Sean Connery. You know, yeah. I just, that, 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 that bond he played was just the right amount of grit. 
Right. When he hits you with a punch, you stay down. <laughs> and then he could offer a little throwaway humor to, you know, to uh, set the tone. I always remind, I was reminded of that moment in Dr. No when he's being chased by the hoodlums in the hearse and they go over a cliff and explode. And a construction worker comes running up and says, how did it happen? And Connery looks with a total straight face. I think they were on their way to a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and that set the tone for humor. Not direct humor, right. what they call throwaway humor. Uh. When Roger Moore came in later, yeah. then it was a little bit more of a humorous thing. Because Roger was very good with light comedy. But Connery was my favorite. But I have to say that since 2006, I've been a dyed-in-the-wool Daniel Craig fan. I think we needed a new bond for the 21st century that kind of brought us back to Connery's ruthlessness. Yeah. I mean Sean Sean will always be this this the standard and the golden standard the gold the golden finger standard of it. Uh but uh, Daniel yeah just brought it and and cuz you know the bond just uh it, it starts with a chasing, right? It always starts with a big chasing and it, Daniel Craig that chasing at the beginning was just on foot and just the chase scene was just running, running, and you're just out of breath watching it. Uh, it was just, it just, it just, that just blew me away. I'm like, oh my, all right, we'll give this guy a chance. <laughs> oh, yeah. And by, by the way, the guy who was chase, chasing uh, Sebastian Foucan yeah. was one of the creators of parkour. So you were seeing a lot of stuff that there was no special effects right. involved. This guy literally could jump off buildings. And uh, it was an extraordinary film, that first one, Casino Royale. And, I think um, I'm kind of sorry to see him go. It looks like Craig will have, will have done his last one and they'll bring in a new Bond. But the, the series has survived multiple Bonds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it survived, of, if it survived of, Ted, it could survive anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the thing is that um, everybody has brought something different to the table. Yeah. You know, my least favorite Bond would probably be Timothy Dalton. Okay. I, you know, again, I thought he was a good actor and he brought a seriousness to the Bond films, yeah. but he just wasn't my favorite. I just didn't, I, I didn't think the movies had the kind of panache you needed for that character, but he's a very good actor. And, and I also think Pierce Brosnan was very good as well. Loved Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. 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 So and he needed to, it seemed like he was, you know, after it, just that, the TV series, he seemed like he really needed to do a, at least a Bond movie, you know? It he, just, was, he was supposed to do Bond. And he was tied um, up with the TV thing. He was tied up with Remington Steele. That's oh. why we got Timothy Dalton. I always thought that the producers thought of Timothy Dalton as kind of a placeholder until Pierce Brosnan arrived. Because yeah. what had happened, when Roger Moore came in in 73 with Live and Let Die, he had a big personality from television. People knew him as a very attractive, you know, the saint. Uh, he was on a series called The Persuaders. He originated with James Garner and uh, Bar and um, Jack Kelly and Maverick. Mm -hmm. so, I love watching uh, The Saint. Yeah, by the 70s, the Bond producers wanted to go for a new generation of Bond fans. And Roger delivered that in spades. I think if you, if you look at the box office grosses as his films started to come out, particularly with The Spy Who Loved Me in 77 and Moonraker in 79, these were very big international hits. And they kind of coined the term tentpole. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Hollywood is all about tentpoles now, these big effects laid in extravaganzas epitomized by the Marvel Universe and DC. 
but Roger did a beautiful job of that and brought in new fans. And I think they, they liked his type of, of performance, which had, a, had some drama, but also had some lightness to it. And that's kind of what Pierce Brosnan was all about. He brought the seriousness, but he could also turn a phrase because he, he handles comedy well. Well, um, that was kind of stymied. So they brought in Timothy for a couple films, and then they got Pierce. Yeah. So uh, it just uh, before we get off the, the bonds, I have another. But uh, Ted, is it Lassenberry? Is that it? Is that how you say that? His oh, you mean name? George Lazenby? Lazenby. George, not Ted. George Lazenby. Um, George Lazenby. Now, George Lazenby, what by a, the way. What a freak. <laughs> I mean, his story <laughs> is just amazing. Oh, it's very it, freaky. It's, yeah, it, I, he's I, like I, such I a... some of this. Yeah, because um, he lied his way through all of his auditions. He basically said, oh, I've done a bunch of films in Eastern Europe. And of course, in those days, pre-internet, there's no way to check that. (laughs) So when Peter Hunt, the director, now Peter is an interesting story because he had edited the first five Bond movies. So they gave him Honor Majesty's Secret Service as his directing debut. So he was ready to, you know, loaded for bear. Unfortunately, Sean Connery walks. So now he doesn't have Connery. And then secondly, he's informed by Lazenby that he has no acting experience. None. None. It's great. So what he so what he did was because uh, he was like a model uh, and he was doing some TV commercials. Um, he was, but he was he wasn't he wasn't an actor by any means. And then uh, someone said, "You got You're going to be the next James Bond. You got to go and audition for this." And he's like, "I'm not an actor. I don't want to do it." And he's like, "They're like, do it, do it, do it." So he goes and he's like, "All right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this." So he goes to London and he knew where Sean Connery got his haircut. So he went in and he goes, "Give me the Connery." <laughs> so he gets his haircut and then he goes to the tailor, James Bond's tailor, uh, Sean Connery's tailor, and he's like, "I need uh, a suit. You know, I need something that." you know, Sean would wear. And they're like, ah, oh, you know, it's going to take us, you know, six, eight weeks. And he's like, we can't. I, I goes to my interviews like this week. He goes, I, I need a suit now. He's like, well, there is one suit that Sean never picked up. And so <laughs> he, he, he paid him an ungodly amount of money and bought the suit and had it just, you know, they just had a taper just a little bit for him. And I uh, bought himself a Rolex and he walks into the interview. He's like, I hear you're looking for a new James Bond. Uh, and the guy was just mesmerized by the look. Cause it was like, it was it was the look, you know, uh, couldn't act. <laughs> and so they were enamored with him. And then the ball was rolling. And then when the director said, well, how much experience do you really have? He's like, yeah, he tried to come clean. He goes, I got none. He's like, <laughs> they're like, oh, crap, we're stuck now. And they just went with it. And uh, yeah, it's just his whole life is a fiasco. He's, uh, oh, he's yeah, an interesting. Yeah. Well, Pete, Peter Hunt told me that once he found out that Lazenby had no acting experience, he came up with a little bit of a plan to keep him a little bit off base, to not make him too comfortable because by being a little pissed, he got a performance out of him. And, um, <laughs> and <laughs> I like that. Peter was smart. He, you know, he stayed away from him a lot, didn't give him a lot of instruction, didn't want to overburden him. And what emerges is one of the most natural performances of any of the James Bond actors. He right. just seemed very comfortable. There are a couple moments when he comes off a little wooden, yeah. But I would say on a scale of one to ten uh, for that movie, I'd give George a nine. Yeah. 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 It's just but just yeah, and, and that him as a person just is just so it's a, just I love that story coming in. He's such a freak. Oh, yeah. Well, he's he's an Australian and yeah. he's he's he, he can he can handle himself in ten situations. Oh, yeah. All right. So here's my question about uh, James Bond's the movies. Um 
actors aside, um, uh, the directors aside, what's your favorite James Bond storyline? What's your favorite story? Which which of the storylines is your favorite? Well, my favorite, I have two favorite movies because I'm always asked that. Uh, the first one I saw, of course, Goldfinger still for me plays, you know, all these years later. And then the first Daniel Craig, Casino Royale, are right number one and number two, or maybe one and one uh, tied. And then from Russia with Love Story, probably for my money is the best story. Okay. Because it's, um, you know, it's just a great plot. You know, the, the way they... They, they determine how they're going to murder James Bond is just brilliant and steal this decoding device. So that that's definitely. And if you watch from Rush with Love today, it's it's just it just plays. I mean, it plays that battle between him and Robert Shaw on the Orient Express when they get into this fist fight in the train compartment to the death is is extraordinary. Love it. Yeah, I, I'm right with you on on all of those picks. I'm um, right. Right. I need to see this new one to be able to throw it into my into my voting booth. But uh, the, the closest I've seen to the ferocity of that train compartment fight in From Russia Love yeah. was the sword fight in Pierce's last movie, Die Another Day. You know, he goes to that English club and he con- confronts Gustav Graves, who's this billionaire. And they're, they're, they have a sword fight. At first, it's a very nice little, you know, uh, two touches. And then Graves, who has a ferocious temper, decides they're going to do it for real and grabs two real swords. <laughs> and they, they, they proceed to just trash this exclusive <laughs> London fencing club. And what a scene that is. I, I have to say it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole series. You know, Die Another Day gets a little disparaged because at one point James Bond's driving an invisible car which is a little much for a James Bond movie, and this, uh, but this scene was just great. All right, so um, James Bond is like uh, the Man Cave Happy Hour is one of the podcasts that uh, that we do, and it's all about uh, spirits. And James is is known for his uh, uh, his his martinis, uh, and then the Seagrams. Was it Seagrams in? Uh, no, not Seagram's. Yeah, Seagram's. You're talking about champagne. The the but but is it champagne? What's his drink? Is it champagne or is it the martini? Well, his, his it's a vodka martini. Yeah, shaken, not stirred. Right, right. Uh, what kind of vodka? I'm not sure, but I think he likes. Uh, I think he likes Russian vodka. Um, but he also likes champagne, and he's always ordering a bottle of Bollinger or the Blanc de Blanc or, you know, whatever. Um, so, uh, so what so does he funny. drink more of? Does he drink more champagne or does he drink more uh, martinis? What what's come up more in the movies? I would say the martini is his chosen drink. Yeah, but uh, he's you know it's he's always ordering champagne. I don't know if he orders it in every movie. Um, it's so funny in Casino Royale when he's losing and in the uh, Texas Hold'em tournament. And he's lost all of his money. And the bartender comes up. Do you want that martini shaken or stirred? He says, he says, do I look like I give a damn? And it's a great <laughs> little moment for Daniel. Um, yes. I love that. But uh, I actually tried a martini once. I, I have to say that I am not a, a heavy drinker or just a drinker per se. I, I tend to go for pina coladas and margaritas. And, uh, you know, I'm not I, I, my wife says I'm a wussy drinker. So, all right, I admit it. But I, I had to pose with a martini once for the cover of the L.A. Times, and I took a sip of that thing. I said, 
what is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it, it, I don't, I don't like the, uh, the, uh, the olive. I'm not, I'm not an olive guy. I'm, you're not an olive guy. No, I, so. I don't understand why people eat olives. No, I, I look don't. at it like poison. Oh, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. And, and, and so it's the olive juice in there. And it's like, why'd you ru- ruin perfectly good vodka by, <laughs> by dumping that in there? You know, the vodka and the vermouth. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm down. Sounds you know? like you'd prefer to put a cherry in your uh, martini. I am. Yeah. That's it. You know, it's, uh, I'm a little bit more on a Cosmo kind of guy. I'm a girl drink drunk pretty much, you know, throw an ele- umbrella in it and I'm, I'm pretty happy. So well, you and me both, let's go out for a couple of, uh, Kahlua and creams. Well, I got, I brought champagne, uh, because oh, very good. Uh, just very for good. the James Bond uh, champagne, you know, because he, he does do the Bollinger uh, quite a bit uh, and in the, the movies. And the, uh, and the uh, whatchamacallit, um, Don, pa- Don Perignon. Yes. So it seems as though to me uh, in the movies, if he's having a martini, uh, things are about to go down. And if he's uh, physically with fisticuffs, uh, violence. Uh, and if he's having champagne, things are about to go down too, but there's usually a lady involved. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what I've noticed as far as the cocktails with James. Uh, so, uh, in, in the encyclopedia, what are people going to find in the encyclopedia? What, why do, why does someone need the encyclopedia of James Bond movies? It's fun. It's fun. First of all, I pack the book with 400 photos. So there's lots of things to feast your eye on. A lot Mm -hmm. of women in there. A lot of good-looking guys. Uh, there's, uh, I got the, remember I was talking about those signet paperbacks I found on my middle school friend's desks? Yeah. I was able to get the rights to reproduce those covers. Nice. I've got some beautiful artwork by Jeff Marshall and Brian May, who did evocative posters that no one's ever seen before. Mm. Um, you know, they've never been published. Um, lots of color for my first book with color. And uh, it t- the book book turned out really nice. I- I'm very proud of it. Excellent. So, I mean, it's like it- it's a great companion while you're. Or is it something you want to have handy while you're watching the movie? Is it uh, uh, is it something to peruse on the coffee table just while you're enjoying your martinis? You know, it's one of those books where you can open it up when you're watching the movie. I have uh, what I call the setups for all the films. I don't give away spoilers. So if you haven't seen a film, I'm not going to spoil it for you. All right. Uh, But I I have every actor, every location, every uh, gadget, every uh, character name, biographies for over 500 people. I mean, the Bond movies have been going on now for almost 60 years. So there's a wealth of information, Uh, a lot of behind the scenes trivia, things you might not know. Uh, So I pack it with information and it's not a book you have to read cover to cover. You can just drop in and just uh, like, for instance, I'll pick up a copy of it right now and I'll flash real quickly to page 206. And there we have George Lazenby. We just started talking about (laughs) George. There he is. And then just before George Lazenby, I have a reference to the Lawrence of Arabia theme, which is prevalent in the movie The Spy Who Loved Me. In the Roger Moore films, they were always trying to be cute by adding themes. I mean, in Moonraker, he's tapping on the keypad and it's the key tone from close encounters of the third kind that kind of stuff <laughs> so what is yeah what's uh what's uh, uh something surprising that you found in your research uh that most people don't don't know about james well Brown? actually this was very surprising i was asked to do a commentary track with my friend john cork who's also a prominent author and bond historian for the 1967 actually excuse me the 1983 
semi-remake of Thunderball. It was called Never Say Never Again. It was, you know, done by, it was kind of a rival studio Bond because the, the Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, who produced all the Bond movies up through uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, didn't have the rights to Thunderball. So they remade it as Never Say Never Again. So I was interviewing one of the uncredited screenwriters, a guy named Lorenzo Semple Jr. Now, Lorenzo Semple has a reputation in Hollywood. He used to uh, write for Batman back in the 60s, the ABC Batman. And then he wrote a great Robert Redford thriller called uh, Three Days of the Condor. Okay. Which is a great thriller. Yeah. But Lorenzo, back in the 50s, he told me this worked for a, a producer named Gregory Ratoff. And Gregory Ratoff was an actor under contract to 20th Century Fox, character actor type, also producing. And he was the first producer to ever acquire an option on a James Bond novel. He was the first to get the rights to Casino Royale. And he told me that they were grooming it as a, a vehicle for Susan Hayward, who was an actress under contract to Fox at that time, and who would shortly win an Oscar for Best Actress for a movie called I Want to Live. But uh, it's amazing to me that if this had happened, and of course it didn't happen, Bond could have been not James Bond. You probably would have been Jane Bond, uh-huh. uh, which is interesting, especially these days with a lot of female empowerment and women getting major roles, not only Wonder Woman, but all across Captain the board. Captain America. There you go. Uh, not Captain Absolutely. America. I'm sorry. Uh, Captain Marvel. Captain, Captain Marvel. Cap, Captain Marvel. Uh, that was, I just, uh, people were really like, oh, is it going to be any good? I just, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a goof on the Marvel movies. And uh, yeah, they nailed it with that. She nailed it. I just, uh, yeah. I love powerful women in film. I yeah. think it's just great. And we, you know, we're seeing a lot of that these days all across the board. And it's just so much fun because they've got to catch up with the guys who've been dominating action shows for years. And uh, I have a lot of fun. Uh, Charlize Theron was doing that uh, that movie about the old boys uh, or the old guys. And I love that. Um, so it's been fun. I, what did I just get through watching? I got through watching um, Red Notice, which is a movie on Netflix right now with uh, Ryan Reynolds and The Rock with <laughs> Gal Gadot. And there's, there's some great repartee between Gal Gadot and the guys. It is. It is. That was uh they they did a really cool thing. The Rock and the the producers on that they did a, a special screening for uh, educators and first responders. Uh, so if you were a teacher or if you were uh, you know a, a, a police or fire or, or medical, um, they had this opportunity. You could you could sign up and they you could do a, a pre screening of it. And Netflix would send you a special code and you got to see it early for free. Uh, plus they sent you a a, a, a food delivery. Um, coupon. Uh, it's like in your, you know, so you got a free food delivery, so you could have dinner, and they sent you dinner in a movie. So all these first responders, because that's uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I teach high school. Um, so I was able to uh, here in Metro Detroit, and because uh, I live a double life, <clears throat> like James Bond, I live a double life. Uh, so I'm a teacher, and then you know I do radio and stuff, and so um, through all my radio connections, I know all these uh, you know the PR people and the movie people. I'll be going to see West Side Story later tonight, and. Uh, um, the PR people said, hey, can you 
forward this to, you know, teachers and it doesn't have to be teachers in your building. So a bunch of my teachers in my district did it. And then I belonged to a journalism organization here, MIPA in Michigan, and uh, was able to hook them up with uh, a screening of the Red the Red Dawn. It just props to The Rock and, and them for, for having done that. And uh, that was very, very cool. And that was a fun, it was a fun little movie. It's uh, It was fun. It was it's fun not, it's not a great movie. It, it, it's It's a fun movie. And you know something? Fun movies are to be prized these days yeah. because movies, for my money, have gotten too serious. We need more fun. I, I actually work in Hollywood every day. I'm out there trying to sell comedy features. I've been focusing on comedy the last eight years, and we've got a bunch of projects we're working on, and we really want to bring back some fun comedies to the to the table because, you know, we need them. We Boy, do we need how to learn how to laugh again. I'm... I, uh, TV is exhausting. Uh, it's the only way to explain it. Uh, just all this reality stuff, you know. Because I'm, I just, I, my house is, uh, is it, it was built in 1831. I got a 200 year old house, and, and so it, we're always fixing something. And we love watching how to and fixer, you know, shows. But even the the, the fix it up shows are like so reality and scripted and just a pile of horse poop. I get I get frustrated. I'm like, no, I want to I want to learn how to you know I got to go back to PBS and and this old house if I were I really want to get anything because uh, all these other ones are just so scripted and so you know ugh. Uh yeah we need more just real comedy these uh, 90 Day Fiancés and all the engagement shows I, I just I don't I don't that's uh, not my bag <laughs> is I just a cranky old man get off my lawn what is it we, uh, we just wrote a spoof uh which we have high hopes for we uh, we always love that uh which was a straight drama the great Henry Fonda courtroom drama 12 angry men okay which, you know always plays so we've just written 12 anxious men mm. and it's about the most dysfunctional jury ever and they have to uh they have to convict or try or not convict a serial clown killer. And uh, is Richard Lewis available? We get him. He's in there. I love oh, Richard yeah. Lewis. He's got to come in. He'll be the foreman. It'll be great. Richard Lewis used to sit by the pool in my apartment building. Nobody knew who he was. I love him. He's out there in shorts and black socks. I'll never forget it. And he's has he's making notes. I'm sure he was writing comedy. Oh uh, yeah, he'd be perfect. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta see. He's probably. I don't know. What's he doing? He maybe maybe he's available. <laughs> maybe we're gonna need at least twelve actors. I'll <laughs> tell you that. Much. Oh, all right. So uh, Bond, you also did the encyclopedia uh, of the of the Twilight Zone. So Rod Rod Sterling, he passed back in nineteen seventy five, right? Yes, yes. So Rod you didn't Sterling. get to you didn't get to talk to him for the book. So where did you pull your sources for the book? Well, I became very friendly with his widow, Carol Serling. Okay. And Carol Serling lived in Pacific Palisades. Uh, she had seen a short film I had directed as an experiment. I actually remade an episode of The Twilight Zone back in 98. One of my favorite episodes was not one of the more popular ones, but I enjoyed it very much. It was called The Seventh is Made Up of Phantoms. And it's about an army tank crew that's on maneuvers in modern day South Dakota. And they go through a warp and they end up following the train of the Guster's last stand. Oh, okay. You know, so I, we actually shot it out at Camp Pendleton near San Diego with real big armored vehicles. Nice. And uh, it was considered an exercise for the Marines. So Carol, Carol liked the film very much. And um, 
we uh, began to, I began to get research material from her, including a lot of photographs. You know, you write encyclopedias, Jamie, you got to have a lot of illustrations because as, as fun as my writing, I think is, they, they want photos. And one of the yeah. goals in that book, I would argue that in the five years and 156 Twilight Zones that were produced, they had probably the finest cast of television actors ever. Oh, yeah. You know, they had to start over each week. They had to bring in new people. Yeah, yeah. And so my, I, I have over 500 bios in that book as well of all of these people, people who need to be toasted and remembered. And even though there had been some Twilight Zone books out, I didn't feel that they did justice to the performers. And then once again, I, I did my research, finding as much behind the scenes information. And I interviewed nearly everybody who's still alive from the series. So I was able to collect some more uh, great behind the scenes facts. And uh, Carol opened up the files. So I got the actual salaries these people made back in the day, which is just very funny. It's just, you know, th these, these shows were not produced for very much money. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. I, my wife and I, it's our running joke. It's like, ah, a loaf of bread ain't 10 cents anymore. You know, it's like when we complain about the price, because that's something her father would say. Uh, it, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, ah, no, a loaf of bread ain't 10 cents anymore. Uh, well, when tell, we tell that to me who fills up his car the other day and it's $6 a gallon. Oh, crikey. You know, yeah. So it's like, uh, uh, yeah, it's it, looking back at those, those, those historical fees. Uh, one of the other, the other podcasts I do is called Detroit City of Champions, and it's all about 1935 because 1935 was just uh, astounding in Detroit. We had Joe Lewis, who didn't win the championship in 1935, but there were 33 other championships, including the Lions winning their first, the Tigers winning the first World, their first World Series, the Red Wings winning their first Stanley Cup, and 30 other championships. It's just a, it's an astounding story. I'm the author of it. But digging back that far back in history, it's 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 hard to find things. But looking at Joe, because we do the we do the conversion about how much Joe made in 1934 and the purses that he won in 1934, and it's like this you know hundred dollar purse, a fifty dollar purse, um, to these you know ten thousand dollar purses, but you know twenty thousand dollar purses, and, and but those you know translating to now you know we're cl closing in on you know a million five hundred thousand uh, figures. But it was funny to see the the price differential. Um, uh, from, that, can, from, that can literally make yeah. you go crazy. I was just reading about Corey Seager, who left the Dodgers last month to go over to the Texas Rangers on some deal that's worth $325 million. I mean, it's uh, it, this is fantasy land time. <laughs> I, I guess, what? That's like. I mean, here, yeah. here's a funny note. Um, the Twilight Zone was never a ratings hit. You know, right. he had Serling had to fight to keep it on the air every year. He started to do commercials to support his show. Wow. And I have all the figures, you know, Rod Serling, who arguably is the most famous writer in American history in terms of knowing who that is. I mean, yes, Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald are probably well known, but to the average person in media, Serling has a much bigger reputation. Well, he, he was making 90 bucks per commercial, 90 bucks. And uh, he, he had kind of a, I'm not, I don't know if I would say that he was fatalistic because he was a lot of fun. But I think because his dad died at 50, I think he was worried that he had to make as much money as he could 
before he got to a certain age. And ironically, he also died at 50. Wow. Of course, smoke, smoking five packs of cigarettes a day didn't help. <laughs> probably not. Uh, probably not. So, all right. Yeah, so how many Twilight? Flavor. What? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, how many Twilight? Is it just the encyclopedia or did you have other uh, representations or other editions about the Twilight Zone? No, it's the one. And I only focus on the original. I okay. mean, the Twilight Zone has been revived three times. Yeah. And I just don't consider that part of the classic uh, Twilight Zone series. And for my money, whenever you make a Twilight Zone in color, mm. you lose about 50% of the atmosphere. Right. And uh, those shows, and we see them in the marathons. We just had one at Thanksgiving. There'll be one at New Year's. Those shows still play after all these years. Those, and those, those of your listeners and viewers who don't own the complete set in Blu-ray, I highly recommend it because those things are as crisp as the day they were made. Yeah, the, the, and the, the, the stories, the scripts um, on those, those original ones, they're just, uh, they, rival any, they rival anything that, that, that you'll encounter today. They, sur- no, they surpass most things. <laughs> they surpass pretty much everything on TV right now. Uh, in my opinion, it's just yeah. the first time I ever saw an episode of the Twilight Zone. It scared the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. I was probably eight. I wandered into the living room. Uh, my parents were watching an episode called The Silence. And basically, it's a story of this very posh club where one of the older members does not like the fact that one of the younger m- members can't stop talking. He just becomes nauseatingly obnoxious. So he makes a bet with a guy that he he cannot talk for a whole year. They're going to put him in a glass booth in the or a glass apartment in the basement and monitor 24-7 if he speaks. And he offers him $500,000 if he makes it through the year. Well, I looked at this thing. The idea of not having to speak for a year was so frightening to me. I turned. I ran out of the room, and I didn't. I never watched a Twilight Zone until they started appearing in reruns. Wow! So, what's your what's your uh, what's your top uh, one or two episodes or, or or scenes? There's so many. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't you can't not mention favorites without mentioning Bur- Burgess Meredith as the bookish bank clerk who goes into the bank vault every day at noon so he can read in peace, and that's when the world ends. And he finds himself to be the only man in New York City with a mountain of books to read. And then, of course, something happens. And I'm not going to spoil it, but we know it. it's called Time Enough at Last. Most of everybody knows that episode. Mm-hmm. I also like William, William Shatner on the airplane looking out his window. And he sees that gremlin on the wing ripping up the cowling on the engine. That's called Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. Uh, and then one of the more wistful episodes is uh, called uh, A Stop at Willoughby, which is about an, air, uh, about an insurance executive who takes the train back to um, Westport, Connecticut every night. And he starts to see this idyllic community in sunshine. It looks like a summer day when in reality it's the middle of winter and there's snow outside. But he has this one stop at his ship at his, uh, on his trek every day. And I love that episode. Uh, um Serling was interested in nostalgia because uh, he talk about your childhood. He loved growing up in Binghamton, New York and uh, playing on the carousel and little small town life where everybody knew your name. And the, the, the community of Binghamton was like a giant cheers episode. And um, 
I think that when he started to write his stories, he thought about what it's like to go back to an idyllic, you know, because he was working in Hollywood and Hollywood, even back in the 50s and 60s, was, you know, crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, it's my one of my favorite episodes. I, it's, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the bank vault one where the quarter stands on edge and time stops. Sure. Right. Sure. Um, right. He threw the quarter at the newspaper stand and, and the quarter stood on edge. And, and, time... and now everybody, you can hear everybody speaking. Uh, he, he suddenly becomes a telepath. Yeah. I was just, uh, I, I just, I just, I dug, dug the heck out of that one. Uh, yeah. I think that was Dick York who later went on to become yeah. Darren Stevens opposite yeah. Elizabeth Gurney in Bewitched. So many people were on that show. Uh, were one of the Howards? Was he the Wish It to the Cornfield kid? Uh, yeah. Uh, no, that's actually uh, Billy Moomy. Oh, Billy. Okay. Billy Moomy from Lost in Space. All yeah. Right. Ron, Ron Howard actually is in an, Ron Howard has a tiny little part. In, a, in an episode of another one of the uh, wistful episodes, kind of a companion to a stop at Willoughby, it's called Walking Distance. Okay, and uh, he, it's Gig Young plays another burnt out advertising executive who goes back home and goes through time and ends up seeing himself as a kid. And one of the kids across the street is Ron Howard. But Bill Moomy was in three episodes of The Twilight Zone. That Wish of the Cornfield. That. Uh... That's that's like uh, so many of those things are, are part of become. I mean, just the the phrase "Twilight Zone" itself is, is part of the American vernacular. Um, and then uh, just whenever I'm angry, it's just I'm like, ah, just wish it to the cornfield. Uh, just so many of those phrases, so many of those ideas, just become part of you know the American fabric. Uh, and and those shows are so important. You know, Bond and 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 the, and the Twilight Zone even even more so with with that. You know. Well, it's nice to write about a subject that everybody immediately identifies with, you know, and I enjoy that. And, um, you know, the Twilight Zone, here it is, 2021, going into 2022. I mean, 50 years from now, they'll still be watching these old episodes that were produced in the 1950s and 60s. They play and play and play. I think Serling tapped into something that just is very special. He's a very smart filmmaker and writer, um, I discovered something. You know how in regular shows there's a lot of product placement these days? You know, you drive into a Chevron station, you buy, you go by McDonald's, a lot of signage, just everyday stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you watch these 156 episodes of the original Twilight Zone, there are only two times in the whole series where you see anything even closely representing product placement. There's this, the very first episode, which is the pilot of the Twilight Zone, is called Where Is Everybody? Earl Holloman is wandering around this town. He can't find any human beings. And he wanders past an, a gas station, and you see a sign for a type of oil. And I discovered that was a real type of oil. Okay. But the only other reference, and that is hardly product placement, it's just signage. And then yeah. there was a reference at one point where somebody's given a Mickey Mouse watch. But there's no representation of anything familiar, which I think is part of the success of the series is that along with the black and white photography, you're already starting out. You're a little unsettled. You're not looking at something that's that comfortable. Uh, you know, you can't get settled in your seat because you don't know what's going to happen. And I think that's part of the success of that series. 
So where can people, uh, do you have a website uh, people can keep up with as, as new editions come out? Uh, is it just Amazon uh, and your online booksellers, or do you have a website? How can people find Well, I have a strong Facebook presence right now. Okay. I do a, a, a weekly classic film review on a site called Steve Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies. Yeah, you just launched a, a podcast. Is it video? Is it audio? Is it both? Uh, right now, we're starting out as audio. Okay. And hopefully, eventually, to get to video. But the Steve Rubin you got a face with... made for audio for sure. I'm sorry. I said you have a face made for audio for sure. <laughs> I'm messing with you, dude. You're a handsome chap. I'm sorry. God, just messing with you. That's so, a, that's yeah, no, the so champagne I'll kicking have in. The podcast, and then um, you know, I also have um, <laughs> uh, Facebook pages for the James Bond movie encyclopedia okay. for the Twilight Zone encyclopedia. I mean, I just have a basic Facebook page, Steve Rubin, R U B I N. People reach out to me all the time. Um, I'll eventually get a website. Um, I'm kind of grooming myself for hosting work as well. Hopefully to do some hosting and curating of classic movies. Yeah, awesome. Dude, I, I really uh, appreciate you hanging out. Oh, and your cousin, right? Your cousin is John, John Provost from the, the Lassie series. We had cousin through marriage, little okay. blonde Timmy from yeah. uh, from Lassie. Yes. Uh, his we've, we've had him sister. on the show before. We've had him on oh, the yeah, show. Oh, yeah, he's great. His sister yeah. married my first cousin, so we're... We're family, uh, and he's a really nice guy, and he's yeah. married to a really a terrific uh, woman who's who knows all of the classic film actors. And I, oh. I always bump into. I, them I thought you were going to say all your family secrets. I thought. <laughs> 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 oh, but Steve, I appreciate taking the time uh, hanging out, and uh, yeah. So, uh, well, just oh, you uh, know, yeah. You, Anything I, else we I, didn't cover? No, absolutely. You did a good job. And um, I, uh, I'm happy to Oh, And my books are available on Amazon, by the way, the James Bond movie encyclopedia, the Twilight Zone encyclopedia, they are available and uh, uh, happy to talk to everybody about these great subjects. Awesome. So uh, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll revisit and go through because <laughs> I can I can talk Bond all day. So um, I'll finally see the last movie and then we can talk about that. How about that? <laughs> Fair enough. Absolutely. Consider uh, me a regular, Jamie. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye.